This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast where we talk race, politics, religion, and all the things with me, Adam Smith. Asking if students are college ready concentrates on factors beyond the control of higher education and places the responsibilities on K-12 education, the community, the family, and the student. Originally published in 2016, the book Becoming the Student Ready College, the authors flipped the question to provide a new perspective by focusing on what college and universities can do to prepare for their entering students. As the college-going population declines and grows in its percentage of students of color, first-generation, and non-traditional, the concept of student ready takes on a whole new lens. The impacts of pandemics, racialized trauma, and virtual learning have forever changed students. Now, what must colleges change to be student-ready in 2023 and beyond? Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Tia Brown-McNair. She is the Vice President in the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Student Success and Executive Director for Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Campus Centers at the American Association of Colleges and Universities, and is the lead author of the books Becoming a Student-Ready College, A New Culture of Leadership for Student Success, and Equity Talk to Equity Walk, Expanding Practitioner Knowledge for Racial Justice in Higher Education. Tia, I'm honored that you chose to get uncomfortable with us. Welcome. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So a couple quick questions. Can you talk a little bit about the historical context around students being college ready? This whole idea that students need to be college ready. Can you frame that for us where that came from and that what is really implied by that term? And then in inverse, who are the students historically that have not been college ready? Okay. That's a big question there to give Adam. So, I mean, we all are very familiar as educators that the concept of being college ready was something that was phrased many, many years ago when we were talking about the student success efforts and what that looked like to make sure that students had taken the right classes in order to be successful at the institutions they had prepared in ways on knowing how to navigate the higher education system. And of course, that benefited those who were more like second, third generation <laughs> than they were the first generation students or those from racially minoritized groups or various socioeconomic groups that were not traditionally represented within higher education. So that concept, I think most people are very familiar with. We've been talking about what it means to be college ready, but we also were seeing that turned into more deficit-minded language um, about students because then when they were not up to the standards that or the preconceived standards that many within higher education said, it was always the student's fault. So then when we started talking about being student ready, we were having that conversation of what the institution needs to do to support students and their success, knowing that some of our students are entering into our institutions with varied levels of preparation. And with that very, those varied levels of preparation, not in any fault of their own, just because of the political, social, cultural constructs constructs that are part of the educational design within this country, where some systems, you know, 
K through 12 systems are better resourced than others, mm-hmm. then that is why we're talking about the concept of student ready, but in, in the shifting that conversation to what we can control, because once we admit them to our institutions, we have an ethical responsibility to provide them the best education possible. That's right. That's right. Well, and, and I think it also puts the onus 100% on the student. Like there aren't societal reasons and structural reasons why some students, the gun goes off earlier and they start earlier in the race and and others, the reality is because of societal things, not familial things, not K-12 things. Oftentimes those are societal institutional things that give students certain disadvantages, but the reality is they all pay the same. And they're all entrusting us to love on them, care for them, support them, and to ensure that our institution are ready for them and ready for all students. One of the things you do a great job talking about in the book is some of the institutional structures and policies that we need to look at that are in the way. I often call them spider webs. Like when you walk through the basement after several weeks and you just get enveloped by spider webs that you didn't see and they just they stop you from thinking, they stop you from anything but get the spider webs off my face and out of my hair. And thinking about those policies and structures that often envelop our students when they come to institutions, you do a great job in the book talking about policies and structures and systems. Talk a little bit, if you would, about some of those systems that get in the way of institutions being student ready. Well, I mean, it's, it's all aspects of the institution, Adam, that we need to critically examine. It's not just one area in particular. We ask in the book for institutions to be very thoughtful about How do they examine their existing policies and structures and practices to make sure that they are supporting the success of our students and not hindering, whether that is through financial aid, whether that's through advising, whether that's the way through courses are designed, uh, when courses are offered, you know, are they really being responsive to the students that the institution has at that particular moment and and that they're going to be the students who are going to be entering into their institution. So we ask them to be very thoughtful about that based on their institutional values and their mission and their goals and how they intersect with who the students are, the resources that they have available, and then also with alignment with their aspirational goals. So it's not just one area of the institution that we're asking them to look at. We're asking them to think holistically about the student experience, but also to think about the educator experience too. Where What are some of those barriers and obstacles that may be hindering the full engagement of those who want to be part of an institution become more student ready, but may not have the opportunity because of existing structures and the way that they are able to participate. So I'm like, for example, we have some of our, I was at a campus just recently and they were talking about the frontline staff workers and how many, you know, the educators who are frontline staff, um, people who have a day-to-day interaction with the students, there's a knowledge there. There's a knowledge base on, on what it is that they can, they've learned from students, but they may not always be the people who are sitting at the, table. They're not always the ones that are there in the decision-making process. So how can that structure be changed to make sure that those who have the most intimate knowledge of the student experience are also part of the decision-making process at the institution as they seek to become more student-ready? And that's just being more expansive in our work. That's being, and that's being more thoughtful. That's being more intentional in, in what we do. So all of those pieces are extremely important. And our, whether you're talking 
you know, from a student perspective, or they're talking about an educator perspective, being able to engage in that deeper inquiry based on our own mission and values is extremely important. Yeah. You know, as my career has evolved, everything used to be students, Tia. Ah, the students, the students, the students, students. And what I would often forget is my colleagues. And I had to learn to self-talk about my colleagues the same way I talk about students. Well, they have real deep lives and they have trauma and there's things more important than what's going on here. And I would often be really judgy of my colleagues and that in ways I would never judge students and realizing that, you know, our folks are real complex and the pandemic has helped show us that. One of the things, and you did a great job talking about this, is we have all these shared governance models. And what 2020 taught us is that, and you know this, no one has seen students in higher ed like the 2021 first-time cohort. We have never seen it. People like you and I are like, okay, well, all the data's out the window. We got to reset, right? But the people that saw it first were those frontline educators, those advisors, those people who are resident directors, those people who are faculty. How do student-centered leaders create space because those folks are often not in the room when those decisions are made, right? But those are the folks that first saw, wait a minute, this isn't normal. How do leaders in a student-centered institution create space for those frontline people and not just performative, give us your feedback, but really hear the changing face of students and what students' needs are and how institutions should respond to them? I think you have to be expansive about your ways of knowing of what you actually take as valid and reliable data in order to make these decisions. And it's not just quantitative. It's not just from the IR report or the assessment report or what leaders are saying. It's really, you know, being um, thoughtful about the data sources and being making sure that they're diverse and making sure that you're getting a multiple multiple perspectives of who it is that you're getting the information for from in order to make those decisions. So I think that that's first important, first off important. But I also think it's important that the leaders who are at the table, who are at the cabinet level or who at the division level making those, those decisions that they're talking to the people and bringing that insight and talking to the people who are the educators, who are the frontline um, educators doing this particular work. Um, I think it's important for them to make sure that their viewpoints are represented in these conversations, if they're not physically at the table uh, during these discussions. And I think that's just a sign of a good leader, a good student-ready leader saying, I'm not doing this based on my own anecdotal evidence. I'm not doing this based on my own preconceived notions or my own limited perspective. I'm doing this because I've spent the time with my peers within my department or within my program, within my area of expertise. And when we're talking about these and we're raising these questions in a thoughtful way and their viewpoint matters. And I think, again, a mixed method approach to um, how we make those decisions would be very important. Yeah. And it's it's always interesting when I, I someone asked me when I was teaching a graduate class in higher ed, well, when you thought you would be at the time I was an AVP, I, I was a guy who was kicked out of college twice. I, this is no way did I think with a 0.86 at the University of Wisconsin that Smith, this first generation guy from nothing, would be doing work at institutions that I was struggling to navigate. But just like you, it's that ministry, right? To saying, okay, 
I, because this was so challenging for me, I've got to help others break down systems and structures because oftentimes in those rooms, there aren't people who got a point eight and drove a school bus in Minneapolis who remembers how it was to owe $600 and have to get a third cousin to co-sign for a private loan to go back to school because a lot of our folks just had certain gifts. That's why they work in higher education. One of the things and one of the most important pieces are faculty. And you do a great job in the book talking about what faculty look like and how they are supported in student-ready colleges. Because some of our folks may not know, faculty, especially at R1 flagships, research institutions, they're judged on all these different things. Probably the least of these is teaching. How do student-ready institutions pour into faculty to help support them as teachers, to help them work with students that have neurodiverse challenges and differences and may approach education and learning differently. How do you advise those institutions to really help faculty as educators adapt and learn and change their pedagogy as they go around? So I just want to say that I am definitely a supporter of faculty. And I I mean, just even this week, having the conversation with faculty members who were asking um, difficult questions, critical questions about the work and what they needed to do, but also being realistic about the pressures and the amount of work that is on them right now to support the students that are at the institutions post-pandemic, right? We can now say that post-pandemic since they declared that it's over. And it's not that they don't have the desire and the will, they do that, but there's a lot, just like our students have competing priorities and they're being pulled in so many different ways. So are our faculty members, they want to do the most innovative, the most creative, and many of them are doing that uh, within the classroom. But we also know that the research on student success and what we need to do to support, as you mentioned, neurodiverse students and students who are, are coming to us with very like you said, we had talked about earlier, very levels of preparedness or just the diversity, the range of diversity within our student identities, as, we, as we're talking about, is that that's not always the same as the way the reward and incentive structure is set up for faculty um, within that, with the research and the teaching and the service. And what's valued is not always in alignment with what we know are the best practices for student success. And I'm going to say this may not be very popular, but I think that it's it's almost like they're pushing up against each other um, with what it is that we know is going to support students and their success. And then also the way that we think about the reward and incentive structure for faculty and tenure and for the promotion um, throughout the system. So, I mean, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I remember having this conversation with someone, they were doing a lot of work on student success committees. They were doing a lot of work on our diversity and equity and inclusion committees. They were active at those type of conferences, but when it came down for them to get tenure, those those aspects of the work were not valued. Um, And I think we have to think, do a little bit of reimagining and remaking of, of, okay, well, wait a minute, but the research shows and the data will show that these are the practices that best support students and their success, how do we create the space where somebody who, a faculty member who really understands that and wants to be engaged with that isn't penalized because it's not in alignment with what the traditional structures are saying that this is what you have to do in order to get tenure or to get promotion. And I think it's not an either or, I think it's a both and, I think those aspects need to merge so that we're not adding on that the work on student success or becoming student ready isn't an additional piece, but it's actually something that's core 
to how they are going to advance in their careers, but also core to how they're going to get promoted as well. And it's not something that's seen as less than in this process. Um, So I think that that's something for us to consider as well. Well, and there's so many of our leading community colleges who balance that really, really well to make tenure, right? Um, And there's pieces there that we can take because every faculty member I've talked to, almost every single one, wants to pour into students. It's just, I only have a certain amount of time and I have these other things that are being valued more. And that changes even more as our, as our college going population continues to shift. You know, when we have to be what Wesley Snipes called, you know, new Jack cops for new Jack gangsters, At the end of the day, we're going to have new Jack students, you know, the suburban Caucasian private school attending student in 10 years is becoming more and more harder to find. And we are becoming what we would call new traditional people who are veterans, people are coming back to school for retraining, people of color, people who live in rural Appalachia are going to college. How can institutions change and how is the concept, and this is since you all wrote the latest edition and it was published and all of those pieces, how has that shifted the concept of student ready as the population who attend institutions are beginning to continue to shift and change, become more diverse, more poor? And I wouldn't say non-traditional, I would say new traditional. So first already, Adam, when we wrote the first edition, it would already shifted. I mean, so that so that's just the reality. It's not that it, it it's going to. It's already shifted. We have everybody knows uh, we're. I mean, most people are understanding that it's the most diverse student population that we've had in post secondary education, and it's going to continue to become more diverse for multiple different identity groups, and not just by race and ethnicity. So that part is already there from the first edition to the second edition. So our two core principles that we say in the book that are still relevant from the first edition to the second edition is that every single person on the campus is an educator and needs to be treated as such because they play a role in the educational environment for the students. And then also every single student that is admitted to a post-secondary education institution deserves access to a high quality education. So keeping those in mind and thinking that then institutions are going to have to think more critically about how do they deliver on those promises if they're staying true to the core pieces of what we say are fundamental to what it means to be student ready. And that those aspects of the work, that hasn't changed. That is going to be, that is going to be truthful. Now, understanding who our students are, understanding their lived experiences, understanding what their barriers and what their obstacles are, whether they're opportunities for success, what they're bringing, the richness of their diversity and how that richness of the diversity adds to the community and in our higher education institutions. All of those pieces are questions that we should be asking and we should be lifting up and we should be thinking about in our educational design, whether that's in the curricular or the co-curricular. Tia, one of the things I was wondering is how can an institution be committed to providing exemplary results and practices that support student success without at the same time doing the same thing in diversity, equity, and inclusion? So, I mean, it's a complex question. It's definitely a complex question that many within higher education we are wrestling with. So I don't want to call any institutions names. I don't want to do that. So I'm not talking about any institution. It's specifically because that's that's not what we're doing here. 
is, is what we want to focus on is alignment with mission and values and what we need to do to support our students and their success. So if understanding who our students are, their lived experiences, what their barriers and what their obstacles are, that's core to the work that we have to do in relationship to support them in their success. And every institution should be thinking about that and thinking about what is going to either hinder or support their engagement within the educational environment. Now, as far as when it comes to the politics of DEI that's happening right now, we talk a lot about we need to reclaim the narrative. There's been a lot of misunderstanding of what it is and what it isn't. Uh, People have misused, I think, the language of DEI and what it actually means for how we're supporting students and their success. It's not about um, supporting one group and not taking away support from another. It's about supporting all of our students and how we vary in the ways that we do that. And, and that's okay. We're supposed to be doing that. Students are individuals. We are institutions are based on their institutional context and culture and, and who they are educating and serving. But I do think this is a localized effort. I was talking to a colleague today about this, is that this can't be, it's not going to come from a national organization where we're going to change this. We are going to support the work that's happening at a local level, but this reclaiming of the language is going to have, it's all local, right? It's, it's, it's local. Being able to get in front of the people that are making these decisions and saying, this is what equity means. This is what equality means. This is what diversity means. This is why it's important to our institutions. This is why it's important to our students. And this is why it's important to student success. All of those pieces, we have to be willing to reclaim and ready to reclaim that narrative, not being confrontational about it or being combative about it, but just engaging in conversations with those who may have different viewpoints in us. And we have to stop intellectualizing this and talk about what it is. I don't know how many campuses I've been to lately where we've been having conversations about what's your understanding of diversity and equity inclusion, is it a shared understanding at your institution? And many of them cannot say that. We have to go back to the basics. We have people who are working on campuses that some are talking about equity, some are talking about equality, some are talking about diversity, some are talking about inclusive excellence, some are talking about anti-racism. And when we're out representing our viewpoints, it's confusing to those who have the misunderstanding because we're talking at cross purposes with each other. So this is a really back to basics conversation with us internally is also getting out of our jargon, talking to people, the public about what it is that we do and what it is and why it's important. Those are extremely important to us at a local level of making sure we're making those connections, talking to our business leaders, talking to, you know, our local foundations, talking to the local school systems. I mean, really being willing to engage us. And many institutions are doing that. Many Community organizations are doing that, and we have to keep working on that. I've worked at a few institutions, and you know new student orientation in the summer, right? It gets exhausting. I happen to be the weirdo that would do orientation every day for 365 days a year. Just love it. And just sit and talk to groups of students and their parents. And at one point, I was talking to our advising leaders, and they were talking about how exhausted they were. This is the 13th orientation program. I said, not for that student and their family. It's the first. That's a Disney World concept, right? This day is the only day we're open because we have your most precious thing. You all have a great story among many in the book about a student who has a really tough experience. And the student finally gets to the president. The president helps resolve the experience. The student has to write a letter, but the student, instead of signing their name, they sign a number. 
And I think that's what you're talking about uh, with true equity and inclusion is we see each student, whether that student is five years old or 55, as the most precious thing to someone. And we see them and value them and love them and care for them. They may not be ready to be in school, but so many of our students have to be at school. One of the things I wanted to ask you about the last thing is when I got into this business, I got into it like many of us through Trio, you know, as an upper bound guy. And um, it was a place to be. And I remember when I moved into a dean of students role, I kept being told by people at my institution, we are not a nonprofit. We're not a social service agency. All it took was a global pandemic to have all of us realize that the institutions in most municipalities have better services than the municipality themselves. How do institutions that are student ready see the student beyond what they can do in the classroom and pour into them in all these other ways? Because we all say, and there's a piece in the book where you, you all are talking about all of the resources and this web of resources. And we say, oh, we have all of these support systems on our campus, but they're often underutilized. And my mentor said, sometimes the students that need us most are least likely to ask. How do we make those resources and that web of resources unavoidable? How do we identify students who need the support earlier? And how do we engage them in a way that's almost intrusive to make sure that they have the support in the classroom, in life that they need, that then can scaffold them up and help them be better students and better in their career, and more importantly, better members of our community? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's great. But first, let me say that I started in TRIO, too. Uh, I was an outreach counselor in the educational talent search program. So that's how I started my professional career in this field. So, yeah, we have that connection, Adam. We definitely do. So, first of all, this is an issue and a concern of many institutions right now. And if you look at any of the national data that's coming out about what are some of the highest concerns and, and what are institutions focusing on? They are focusing on this wraparound services. They are focusing on student well-being. They are focusing on belonging. They are focusing on how we can make sure that you stay engaged because they understand that given what we've been through over the past couple of years. And it's not just from COVID, but also because of the trauma that many students have experienced because of ongoing racial and social injustices. I mean, economic injustices across the board. So the institutions that I have worked with over the past couple of years, this is at the forefront of their minds. They are thinking, okay, how do we redirect our resources? How do we expand the personnel that's providing support for students in these areas, making sure that they have not only the academic support within the classroom in order to support their success, but also the social and emotional support. They are putting more resources into counseling services. They are putting more resources into academic support areas. They're putting more resources into their food pantries, into their emergency fund resources. I mean, they're doing those things because institutions understand and they know they're, they've heard the students. They, they've actually, in some of the institutions, you know, from their own educators there, they've lived that themselves. They understand where students are going. So, so I actually see that it's not that they don't get it. I see that many institutions do get it. They are making the difficult decision on, okay, where do we, how do we redirect some of these resources into the very things that we know will, will support students' well-being and their success and their, promote their belonging and promote their engagement. It has probably been one of the top conversations that I've had with many institutions that I've worked with lately. So I definitely see that the awareness is there 
It's just making a difficult decision. Okay, how do we make sure in a time of limited resources that we are being very strategic and the decisions we make obviously have consequences for many different aspects of the institution, but how do we make sure that those consequences aren't more harmful to our students? Yeah, and how do we how do we direct them in an intentional and purposeful way proactively, right? I mean, there were times in this business in the retention business that I would dream for the predictive modeling we have now and the data and the analytics about who's going to need support, who isn't. We know it before you even step on a campus. There was a point, as you remember, probably that over winter break, students would have to go home unless you're international or student athlete over summer break. That is not how it is anymore. For many of our students, the only home they have, I had a colleague of mine tell me that when people got sent home during the COVID pandemic, they only they not only got an eviction notice, they got a pink slip because that was where they work. That's where they live. That's where they belonged. And so institutions are realizing, you know what? I, I continue to say this. We may have students at my institution who are not ready to be in school, but they have to be at school. School's their only place. It's the only place they can be seen, heard, valued. And then how do we ensure that those huge amounts of wraparound and support services that we are engaging students in those before it's too late? Before, oh, I've done harm to myself or others, or oh, I'm so struggling, I, I can't come back from it. So many students I always give counsel to when they say, well, I have to leave the institution. Well, where are you going to get the support in our communities that you can get as a member of this community right now? And so not to forsake that. Dr. Tia Brown-McNair, thank you so much for your time. We know you have a busy schedule. I look forward to seeing you in person again and giving you a hug. I really appreciate all your time, all your work, and all your wisdom. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. You have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between Adam Smith and me, Rachel Hansen. There are a number of ways that you could support the show, and we would appreciate any support you could give. Uh, you can leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can send us an email, and our email addresses are in the show notes. Or you can share an episode with a friend. This will help us to build community and promote true healing through uncomfortable conversations. Until next time, stay uncomfortable.